Evening, everyone. All right. Tonight we come to a very short text. So proportionately, the sermon will be the same length, but prepared, you know, compared to the passage. Anyway, whatever. Um, and if I sound a little bit funny, it's because I've got some dental issues going on, and I was hoping to talk something like this, but because that's actually how it hurts less, but I'll talk as normally as I can because I like you and I don't want to confuse you. But if I sound a little bit different, that, that's why. Um, I want to talk to you about the summer of 1996. That's where I got this shirt. Okay, this is vintage. This is the only vintage shirt I have. And I saved this shirt for years. It was in my parents' or in my parents' house in Tulsa. I had I'd left, um, never to return in 1997. I mean, I went home for holidays, but I left and I knew that my home was wherever the Lord took me. And this shirt stayed in my parents' home for, gosh, I must have gotten it uh, two or three years ago. So this is an old shirt. And in the summer of 1996, the Summer Olympic Games were held in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was about to be a high school senior. Now, a lot of you are not too far from that experience being a high school senior, you remember how exciting it was to be big man on campus or a big woman on campus, you know, the, the, top, uh, the top dogs, as it was. And I was really excited because I had figured out how to take as few classes as possible. I had enough credits to graduate, so I'll, I'll tell you the secret that I didn't say in the other services, but since it's being recorded, I guess the cat's out of the bag. What you did is, back in my day, you enrolled in junior college in, in like calculus 5,000, and um, then you dropped it. So, ostensibly, you were supposed to be in one place, but you ended up not being there, and that meant you only had a half day of school. That was the magic that we were able to work. And the half day of school that we were there, I was in, you know, the debate club, so all I did was hang out in the debate room, and it was a grand old time. Such was high school. I was so looking forward to it. And in that summer of 1996, I was offered this incredible opportunity to go to the Summer Olympic Games in Atlanta uh, for just a few hundred dollars, which my parents paid, and I, you know, I didn't have to shell out any of that. So they offered for me to go, and all we had to do in exchange was to sell Olympic merchandise at the kiosks in Olympic Village in Atlanta, and um, we could hang out at the Olympics, but not just that, we could get tickets to see the events that we wanted to see. Now, somebody just told me that they fell in love that summer with uh, Nadia Comaneci, or that's her name, right? Uh, anyway, I, I didn't know who that was. But I did know I wanted to go see ping, uh, table tennis. I was about to call it ping pong. It's not it's table tennis, okay? I wanted to see table tennis. I wanted to see taekwondo. I wanted to see real tennis, because uh, those were the sports that I knew, I guess. Uh, not breaking any stereotypes there. So what happened was we get on this bus in the middle of the summer, we pay our money, and uh, we get this nifty t-shirt, and we weren't taking just any bus, we were riding in style, right? So when you're 17 or 18, any bus with a TV in the ceiling, that's a legit bus, right? It's like pretty fancy, but there's more. This bus wasn't your, you know, average yellow school bus, this was the maroon and white bus, 
that, that was our school colors. We were the Jinx Trojans. That was on the side. Jinx Trojans, maroon and white, air-conditioned bus. It was incredible because this was the football player's bus. And I'm from Oklahoma, so you guys know the con- like Friday Night Lights, all that kind of stuff. Like football was it, and I was sitting in a football bus. And I was riding to Atlanta, Georgia. It was incredible. Opportunity of a lifetime. We arrived there. We pull up to the middle school where we, we're going to be staying in the gym in like these bunk beds that they set up for us. We pile out. All of our stuff is out of the bus. The buses take off. We're ready to get into the, you know, into the middle school. And we're wondering, what's taking so long? Why isn't anybody here to greet us or to let us in? And it turns out they didn't even know we were there. You see, what happened was the guy who set up this opportunity for us took our money, all 50 of us, and he fled the country. Isn't that sad? I mean, that's, like, that's messed up, right? You see, I'm betting that even though there's not the audible gasp that I was really hoping for, There is in each one of you a sense of indignation that that kind of heinous swindling is wrong. I'm I'm almost certain that each of you knows the wrongness of taking money from a high school student and fleeing the country. You see, back in Jesus' day, they... Thank you. (laughs) They would have also known the heinousness of doing something so flagrant, right? So it's not with major things that Jesus has been concerned thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. You've noticed this over the last few weeks. It's with the details that people began to do this kind of nitpicking and legal wrangling so they had to find a way to get out of actually obeying the law. The law was plainly there in the clear interpretation of the law, but they found ways around it. That's what's going on in this passage too. So we're going to open up to the text, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, and we're going to look at it closely because the issue here that Jesus is concerned about, remember, this whole time he has been trying to fashion and craft a new family built around a new code of conduct and built around the person of Jesus Christ himself. He's trying to build this family, and he says that in this family... The way that we use our words means that each one of us can be taken for our word. We are as good as our word in the family of God. Now, I know that's not always true for each one of us. It's not always true for me. And we're going to talk about that. But in the family of God, we are a people who are to be taken at our word. And in this passage, there are two basic instructions. One of them is a do. One of them is a don't. Let's look at the don't first. And it starts in verse 33 where Jesus basically teaches us that we don't look for ways out of truth-telling. We don't look for ways out of truth-telling. The problem here was swearing or taking an oath. Look what he says in verse 33. Again, that you've heard that it was said to the people long ago. Now this is Jesus' formula for saying, I know you all have a familiar saying or a convention by which you know how to talk to one another. And I don't like it. And here's what he takes issue with. This is an old saying. And it goes like this. Do not break your oath. Leviticus 19 verse 12. And he continues. Keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. 
Deuteronomy 23, verse 23. What just happened there? This old saying is not any old saying. This old saying comes directly from the law of God, whom everyone in the audience would have instantly recognized as something you don't argue with. What is Jesus doing? Does Jesus despise the law of God? You know, at times, the Pharisees thought so. But it's clear to me, and I hope to you as well, that what Jesus is doing is taking issue with what happened in the culture to the law of God as it had been changed and adjusted, tweaked and wrangled with so that they could actually disobey the law of God. He was not happy with the situation. What was the problem? Well, he spells it out for us in verses 34 and 35 where he says, I tell you, don't swear at all. And that's your hint to know that as Jesus is shaping a new family, this family is radically different so that he would say, don't swear at all. Your speech is completely different. The way you talk to each other, it's totally different because you don't swear at all. Because the problem was this. They were taking heaven and they were taking earth and they were taking Jerusalem and swearing by them. Now, back in the day, here's how the technicalities worked. If you swore by Jerusalem, that was one thing. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, that was quite another thing. One made you bound to your word. The other freed you from having to fulfill your obligation. Isn't that strange? Doesn't that provoke a sense of indignation in you that there's something some kind of swindling going on here that they had forgotten, but Jesus calls out directly. The question I want to ask is, do we have any similar ways of using words? Do we have conventions where we're able to say something, but actually it means that we don't have to do it at all? We do, don't we? We most certainly do, and especially in the church. We churches have um, ways of talking that are very strange. I'm sure if you're a newcomer, you'll notice this, especially if you're new to the faith. When we say goodbye, we actually say, here's how we say goodbye. We say, I'll pray for you. Right? That means goodbye. It's very strange, and it doesn't actually mean that I have to pray for you. Now, I know that's sort of a meddling example. Let me talk about something a little bit more serious. When we sing, this is what I'm primarily concerned about. You see, I believe that the worship of God engages the whole human being and it makes an oath to God as we give Him our very voice, however feebly we do it. But when we sing words about how we will pour ourselves out in service to the King, when in fact we have no intention of doing so, when in fact we withhold major parts of our life, when in fact we've never asked God what I should major in, where I should live, what job I should take, when we've never consulted Him, when we hold our lives back and then we sing songs like this, I don't understand how this could be a good habit for us. Amen. Thank you, brother. So we have to be very cautious about doing that. Now, I know these are relatively mundane examples, and I was looking to talk about more than just our response to the question, how do I look, right? We could talk about that all day long and about truth-telling and the ethics of doing that, but I think this is about much, much more than just over-promising and under-delivering. I think this is also about overselling who we are. Remember last week we talked about 
who is the greatest? That question comes up in the way that we talk to each other, and I think that's what he has in mind here as well. And this is where the word antithesis comes in. That's what these verses are referred to. These, you've heard it said, but I say to you. The you've heard it said part is the thesis. The but I say to you is the antithesis where Jesus disagrees. And here's what he disagrees about. The only analogy that I could come up with was airline overbookings. Okay, so I think you guys know more about that than some of the other services because they're like, well, what's wrong with that? Now, you know how it works. You got an airplane with 150 seats, right? And they will sell as many as 225 seats because that's how many people won't show up for the flight that day. It makes perfect business sense. In fact, they have to do so if they want to stay in business. So we give them a pass. We understand. But when you've been on the receiving end of overbooking, you have a sense that something is wrong in the world. When we were interviewing for this job, we actually got stranded here for three days. The first day... It's like, okay, that's our bad, you know, we should have been wiser, whatever. The second day, it was like, how can you cancel our flight? That's just really messed up. And the third day, it was like, forget it, we're going to Disneyland. So that's what we did, and the kids were happy, and the guy at the counter was like, what's wrong? And I'm like, well, I'm only here because I have to be. He's like, here's some park tickets. When you're on the receiving end of somebody overselling themselves, it's pretty clear right away. I think our generation and the ones below are really good at sniffing out fakers, posers. Pretty good at that. And I'm one of those people who has a tendency to oversell. Let me, let me talk about that for a second. Even this passage, it's very short. One of the nasty impulses I had in my head was, man, how am I going to get a half hour out of this? Right? That's a terrible thing to think about a sermon, right? Like, how do I fill the space? Luckily, the Lord showed me plenty of things to say to you tonight. But I should have been fine with a 15-minute sermon, and all of you would have been probably really happy about that. I wanted to dress this up with something really profound. Now, let me tell you why. When you, when you tell people that you're getting a PhD, all of a sudden they expect you to say profound things. So... I just kind of wanted to say profound things, but I know that I need to fight that with every fiber of my being. That it's not about the profundity of my words, it's about what God has said to us and our faithfulness to his instruction. All of us seminary folks, and I know that there's some of you here in this room, we always have a joke about the degree that we get. It's a professional degree. It's called the Master of Divinity. You know what that means? Well, that we've mastered the divine, of course. What else? No, far from it. May the divine master us instead. When I was a parachurch campus ministry member, I would have to find a way to explain my job. Because people were always talking to me and saying, so, you just hang out in coffee shops all day? Um, do you get paid to do that? I get, I, yeah, where, where does the money come from? Well, people donate. Oh, oh, yeah, that's, that's nice. 
So when people asked me what I do, I would have to find something impressive to say to them. And I would say something like, I'm a religious and vocational advisor for college students. And I'm glad you laugh because I don't buy it either. I mean, people know when you're faking. My boss at the time, he shared with us what he says when people ask him what he does. And, you know, he's over 50, so people were really wondering, when are you going to get a real job? And what he says back to them, I help college students consider the claims of Jesus for their life and for their study. Do you see the difference in plain spokenness about saying who you are before the face of God and having nothing to hide for that? I'm still learning that. And, you know, I'm not into old movies at all, but there is one old movie that has stood out to me. Uh, I watched it, like, I guess one scene with my mom. My mom was really obsessed with this movie. She really liked it. Gone with the Wind. Anybody seen that movie? It's really long. Yeah, I I didn't think so. Anyway, Scarlett O'Hara has this famous scene, which I'm sure it's a cultural meme. She says, as God is my witness, I will never be hungry again. Remember that part, right? Like that's everywhere, all over the YouTubes and stuff. Um, But there's something that she says right before that quotation. She says, I'll never be hungry again. No, nor any of my folk. If I have to lie, steal, cheat, or kill, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. She got it wrong. Brothers and sisters, God is our witness. There is nothing that we can swear by that he doesn't already own. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is the center of his redemptive plan. And he will bring it to pass. He owns all of this. And, brothers and sisters, he owns you. Your body belongs to him. It has been bought with a price. And every hair on your head is under his sovereign control. We live before the face of God so that using our words to make ourselves great is no longer necessary because God knows who you are and there's no hiding from Him. No hiding from Him. When we use our words in this wrong way, we're actually finding a way to get out of community. And I have this little um, memento that my daughter made for me this afternoon. And she said, Daddy, this is for you, for when you teach tonight. It says, I love God. And I, so, I told her, oh, that's great. And she said, you're going to wear it? And I didn't dare to say no. But I didn't say yes. But to be plain spoken and to be consistent and for her to be my daughter, for us to be a family, part of me has to make good on that promise to her. And so, as lovely as this is, I want to wear it, at least for a little while. There is another way to get out of community. Not just using our words in the wrong way, but also avoiding really hard conversations with one another. There's another way to destroy the community that Jesus was trying to instantiate, to develop, give birth to in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's to avoid one another. The text doesn't talk directly about avoidance, but the topic of truth-telling is absolutely pertinent because if we avoid difficult conversations with, another, with one another, we will never have the opportunity to tell the truth. Just this last week, I was in the Axe Thrift store, 
And somebody stopped me and said, I recognize you. He was an older gentleman, and he began to share with me some of his very, very deep concerns, doctrinal concerns, ethical concerns. I could see the gravity on his face. And I was so thankful that he took the time to tell me honestly. And, you know, as the conversation got on, uh, wore on, he became more and more honest with me. And I was thankful for that because he was able to tell me what was on his heart. I hope that each of you has the sense that you can talk to your elected leaders and your pastoral staff here at Lake Avenue Church about the things that you really care about. But we all know that there are conversations that are not going on. I have some of them. We've got to talk. There's got to be some kind of equivalent to the family dinner table if you had one of those growing up where you get around that table and you talk about what's really going on. We've got to do that. You see, I'm glad that that brother was able to talk to me, but what I really want is for him to be able to talk with the rest of us. This is a big place. We've got to find some kind of family table where we do family business. I do hope that we can find a place like that where we can speak the truth and love to one another, but I also think that we must be very cautious because Jesus teaches us a second lesson in verse 37. He says, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The lesson that he's trying to teach us, if at first the people of God aren't trying to look for ways out of truth-telling, the second lesson is this, we look for Christ-like ways of truth-telling. Let me tell you why I see that here. The first thing he says is simplicity in your speech. And we know that Jesus was the master of being honest with his people. So how do we do this? Well, it's quite simple. I have very little innovative things to say here. We tell the truth. But how do we do that? You see, I think another churchy thing that happens is that we take a verse like speaking the truth in love. And that becomes for us an opportunity to be reckless and careless with our words because we're just being honest. Speaking the truth in love. Is this the simplicity that Jesus had in mind? Being a verbal wrecking ball with our brothers and sisters? Actually, it's quite the opposite. I hope that's clear to you from this text that we use the words from our mouths to build up our fellow image bearers and not to tear them down. Now, sometimes we're really honest because we're just really direct people. And I know some people like that and I love them dearly. But let me give you an example of the difference between direct and indirect so that as we begin to be a family, a diverse family together, we can figure out what this might feel like. Let's say you're on the job and your boss comes to you and says to you, you really, you really screwed that one up. I have the feeling that most of us, unless temperamentally we're very confrontational, which is okay, I think that most of us, that would sting a little bit. Maybe that's an understatement. If somebody came to you and said, man, you screwed that one up, I think that would hurt a little bit. Now, before you jump to the conclusion that all of us just need to grow a thicker skin to live in America, I want you to consider how, how we speak the truth. In the family that I grew up in, it took no words for us to know exactly where we stood with one another. And in fact, to use words was an assault on our dignity and our honor. In a culture that's 
honor and shame based, much like the people were in Jesus' day and arguably the vast majority of the world. Truth-telling looks a little bit different so that everyone has to be very considerate about the words that they choose. Now, our communication is going to look different from culture to culture. We just need to work and dance bilingually. That's what it's going to take for us. But one thing remains in clear focus for Jesus, and that's this. He wants us to be people of integrity. That's what he has in mind. Because he says in verse 37, anything else comes from evil. Is he talking about oaths? No, because when I got married, I made a vow to my wife that she would be my one and only. And that was good to solemnize. What he cares about is that I actually have integrity in the way that I talk. That I can be trusted. That I don't need to feel bigger and better than others. In fact, doing so is the flip side of the coin of serving the humble. When you're capable of serving the humble, you have no need of self-aggrandizement. That's the integrity that he's talking about. So with regard to personal morality, the point is using our words in a way that doesn't mar the image of God in others. But there's another kind of integrity that Jesus has in mind. Now remember, he was trying to create a family. So a few weeks ago we talked about corporate fidelity communal fidelity. Now we talk about corporate integrity, that we would be a people who can be believed. Let's zoom out for a second on the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard me say this several times. Each of these sections is designed to teach the people of God that we don't cut each other out of the family of God. We don't call each other raka. We don't divorce each other. We don't step in front of line to get into the kingdom of heaven. We don't trip each other on the way there. We don't say you're out when Jesus says you're in. And here, we don't use our words to swindle each other and to make ourselves great. This has been the whole point because in his audience, there were some people there who had been lied to. They'd been lied to for a long time so that they would never believe that the kingdom of God was for them. And when Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, some people who had done the persecuting would have dismissed him instantly. Other people who had been persecuted and had become jaded could never believe these words, and so they could never become his followers. But still others who had been lied to and hurt when they heard Jesus said, Blessed are you, a glimmer of hope appeared. And perhaps this Jesus could be the one who brings about the shalom of God, the peace of God, where we don't actually treat each other badly. This has become so important for me as a college minister because every skeptical student that comes in my office has one objection. Why does the church talk about loving God when it does nothing about loving neighbor? The warehouse community is the one that puts this front and center, a community of concern. So if you're new here tonight, and this is what I tell all my college students who are looking for a church, we invite you to take a close look at the values of Lake Avenue Church and of this worshiping community to figure out whether it's consistent with what you see in the scriptures or even with what you see on the webpage. Are we doing what we say we'll do? Now, you hear that, right? Like all the newcomers are going to be watching us now. 
And you're like, darn it, now we have to be consistent. Well, you know that that's what was meant to be in the first place. For every skeptical student, for every newcomer, I believe that there's really one strategy to paint the kind of picture that would compel a person to stay at a place like this. And that is to consider the life of Jesus Christ, the one that all of us are doing our feeblest and our best to follow and to become like. This Jesus Christ is the Jesus Christ who encountered a woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he said to her, I'm going to tell you some truth. You've had five husbands. The one you're with now, he's not your husband. We all know this now. But he didn't say it in a way that was mocking or alienating or accusatory or condemnatory. He said it in such a way that caused her to run back to her town and say, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. He awed her. He wowed her. And then he wooed her back. This is a different kind of truth-telling, the truth-telling of the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. Consider Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 22 to 27, where Mark records that the people were repeatedly astonished at the teaching of Jesus. What had he done? Mark records he walks into the synagogue, he encounters a man with an evil spirit, he delivers that man, and then he records that the people were astonished at his teaching. Let me make that connection explicit for you. Jesus does something, and the people are astonished at his teaching. His doing and his teaching are absolutely inseparable in the mind of Mark. We know this because Jesus was asked himself, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what every skeptical student is waiting to see. A people who loves God and loves neighbor simultaneously. Will we be that people? Or is all hope lost? Because when the moment was darkest, and it had appeared that believing in Jesus was a grave mistake, when he had been laid in the grave and the stone sealed, he rose. He rose to new life and said, yes, indeed, everything I told you was true. And it prompts the Apostle Paul to write in 2 Corinthians, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through Him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. It is not us who are to be believed. It is the resurrected Jesus Christ That is the only strategy I know for compelling anyone to come in these doors and to get connected to this community. It's Jesus Christ whom we hold high and we follow as well and as feebly as we can. Heavenly Father, this Jesus Christ whom you sent to us, we place our faith and our trust in Him. We exalt Him and we ask that His promise, that we would become a people of promise, Lord, that that you would make that come to pass by the power of your Holy Spirit and your mighty right arm. In the process of this transition, Lord, we invite you in by your wisdom and by your guidance to be the one who shapes this community into a Matthew 5 kind of community for everyone here who has been lied to. Would you invite them into this place too? For the rest of us who have been lied to, 
so that we can taste sweet fellowship with your Son, Jesus Christ, by the presence of your Holy Spirit. We ask this now for your great name's sake among the nations. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.